Well, good morning. One of the uh, one of the things that we're currently trying to teach in in our house is uh, I don't, what I would call it the concept of if then, um, and I don't mean I don't mean that in the sense of like consequences like punishment when you're when you're parenting, but I mean in the sense of like like understanding that if if you do certain things, like blessings will come upon you. Right? So we're we're teaching a four year old like the silliest little things like if you if you eat your dinner. Like, there is cake on the other end of that dinner, right? And that's a good thing. Um, but one of the things that's challenging is, as kids develop, like, for, for a while, all they see is the then, and the if is an insurmountable obstacle, right? So, like, to us, like, eating some dinner for, for a slice of cake is a small price to pay. Uh, but for, for someone who's three, four, or five years old, that's an insurmountable challenge. And one of the things that happens is when you offer a, a younger child a, a, a do this and get this, what happens is they will fixate on the get <clears throat> and then immediately want the get and not be able to focus on the, the if. If you do this, then this comes, right? That connection between these two is one of the harder things to teach as, as children develop. And so, for instance, one of the things that we, we struggled with the other day, you know, I, I was home alone with the kids and I was going to say, let's go get some donuts and go to a playground because it was nice out. And I said, Graham, if you go potty, we will go get donuts and go to the playground. I want donuts. I know. If you go to body, you will then get in the car with me and go get donuts and then go to a playground. I, I want it now. Uh, yeah, like we're ready to leave. Like just go go potty. Like two minutes. And meltdown. I want it now. Like and it's not it's not. I don't say this to embarrass him as my kid or anything. It's a natural kind of part of a child development. Any kid goes through this. But the connection of how easy it would be to accomplish A to get B is something that just doesn't seem to stick. Right? It became I want donuts and playground complete and utter meltdown. It's amazing how quick he had to have the thing that he didn't know was an option only five seconds prior. Right? I think. The fascinating part is that he was so fixated on the then that he could never even grasp the it. Like, I don't think potty even registered as a thing within his mind. Now, I don't, again, I don't say this to embarrass him. I think it's because this is an example that's indicative of how we a lot of times act as the people of, of God. See, we've been going through these minor prophets and this series called Messengers, and this morning, the, the messenger that we, we look at sees really this reality of life of the Israelites and speaks into it. He sees the struggle between the if and the then on a spiritual level. And so we're looking this morning at the prophet Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah, just some background uh, before we get into the whole if then. Uh, you know, we get the author right in verse one. It tells us that it's Zechariah, and he's the son of Barakiah, and, and the genealogy of Barakiah traces all the way back to the priestly line, starting with, you know, going through Levi and others, and so Zechariah is within the line of the actual priesthood um, at the time, and so he's got kind of a, a, a claim, a, a, a well-known name there, uh, and, and would be somebody who would have already been well-respected in, in the line of the priests, and so there's, there's that. We also learn his faith. If you actually looked at Matthew 23, uh, it talks about Zechariah, and one of the things we learn is that later on, after his prophecies, he was actually murdered in the temple um, for, for a lot of the things that he said. He was, he was murdered and betrayed in the temple, and so his, his end is not one that we would wish upon anybody, right? 
The, the date of the book is actually the almost exact same date as last week when we looked at the prophet Haggai. As a matter of fact, Haggai and Zechariah, they were contemporaries. They worked together. They would have known each other. They would have prophesied together. They would have been in communication with one another among the Israelites at the same time in the same place. It would be like having a, you know, like two pastors in a church, in, in a sense, where they're both communicating in a lot of ways the same truth, but with some unique differences. Haggai mainly wrote in, in a span of four months at the very beginning of when they were supposed to really kind of nail down, start like building the temple. They had started and not finished, and he really pushes that. So Haggai's book is short and sweet and four months long, and it's just this ode to guys, get the temple built. And then it just kind of stops there. Zechariah starts at the same time and has the same message. Guys, like you need to build the temple. I know there's opposition. I know it's hard. I know people from the outside are on you. People from the inside are on you. You need to get this built. But Haggai is, is more in length than, or sorry, Zechariah is longer than Haggai. It's 14 chapters long. And so it's one of the longest minor prophets that we have. He almost doesn't qualify if it weren't for that pesky Isaiah that busts out like 50 plus chapters, right? In comparison, he's short, but compared to all the other minor prophets, Zechariah is a very long and full book. And one of the things we see is that Zechariah, while he starts in 520, Zechariah goes all the way, at the very least, past 515 B.C. And we know that because we know that in 515, the temple is completed. The task that Haggai had set the people up for is accomplished. And we actually know that it was March 15th, 515 BC, based on the dating of King Darius at the time of Persia. We can, just like with Haggai's origin, we can figure out exactly what day the temple was done, and there was a celebration that happens, and Zechariah is preaching to a people both on the side of get this done, and then talking to them after they have gotten it done. And so a lot of what was written in Zechariah is clearly written after the completion of the temple. And so we know that his, his preaching, his prophetic ministry was not just a couple months, but many, many years. And after the temple is complete, what we see in the people of God is this real period of, of longing and kind of an aura of disappointment. Because when they were told that they can go back, one of the things that came with it, if you read through the book of Ezra, is promises about how the Lord would restore all things. How they would be restored to a glory that is even greater than what they had left and how the Lord would do all of these things. There's all these promises of God lingering in the air, awaiting to be fulfilled. And when the people get back, they're obviously disappointed in the rubble. They hesitate to build the temple. But now the temple is done and these promises, these grandiose promises of God aren't seeming to be happening Really, And so, so Zechariah is speaking into that disappointment that undergirds the life of the people. They've heard these post-exile promises, and they're just not seeing them become a reality. And so Zechariah is speaking to a people who have finished the work that it seems like the Lord had called them to do, and they're wondering, where is all this stuff that's due me? In the opening verse, he immediately hints, we'll unpack it when we get to the main, what I believe are the main chapters, but in the opening verses, one through four, he kind of gives a, a preview of what God has to say about this disappointment and about the promises to come. And so later we'll dive in deeper, but for now let's just look at this and you can stay seated. It's in the eighth month, this is uh, just 1-1, Isaiah, or Zechariah 1-1. 
In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Barakiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the key. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And so Zechariah here speaks this phrase, return to me and I will return to you. And initially that would have confused the readers. You mean, what do you mean return to me? We've been back for decades. You, You exiled us and you brought us back. At this point it's been like over 25 years since we've been back. What do you mean return to me? We're, we're here. Right? We, we came back and, and we listened to Haggai. He said, build the, the, the temple. Stop building our house. Start building your house. We stopped building our house. We started building your house. Your house is done. I know it's not as great as it used to be, but it's pretty cool nonetheless. Here you go, God. Like We've done what you've asked of us. Right? And so Zechariah saying, return to me and I will return to you, is almost kind of like a a slap in the face, right? And so it's way more lame of a temple than the first, but they're okay with that. And so we ask ourselves, we did what you wanted, the if, right? Where is our glorious reward, the then, right? We, We did the thing, where's our donuts, is kind of the attitude of the people that Zechariah is trying to speak to. And so when he says, return to me and I'll return to you, their response is, well, we're already back. What more do you want from us, Zechariah? We're getting tired of these prophecies. It's like no matter what we do, we can't get God to be happy. Right? And you see that the frustration that's undergirding everything just starts to bubble up. Now, the rest of Zechariah seeks to answer this question as complexly as humanly possible. Zechariah is not a simple book. Um, if you're a new Christian, I would not recommend it as your, as your first read. As good as it is, it is not a, an easy book. And the reason it's not an easy book is because what follows, starting in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through the end of chapter 6, and we won't read those today, but you, you can, is, is a series of really bizarre dreams that Zechariah has. And if you look at them, they, they seem chaotic, even though they're, they're really organized. Right? The first and the eighth dream are the same. The, the second and the seventh dream are the same. The third and the sixth and the fourth and the fifth, they're, very, they're kind of parallel dreams. And, and in, in Hebrew, we, you know, poetry or whatever, we call that a chiastic structure. It's, it's done for emphasis. And so we, we, you know, we didn't have things like exclamation points back then. And so they, they wrote in certain ways to accomplish the things that we just do with exclamation points. Which, by the way, like 90% of us overuse in emails, right? Amen? <laughs> Who here would like to see less exclamation points in life? Yeah. Not everything is important, guys. Right? But, but that's what we see here, this, this, this series of dreams. And what the dreams really amount to, and we won't spend that much time on them today, is, is a, a, a vision, an overall picture of the promises that God has made and is making to his people. And so... The people say, we've done the if, where's the promises? And, and the response in the rest of chapter 1 through 6 is a reiterating of the promises. Right? And so Zechariah is asked, well, what else do we have to do? We want, we want the promises. And Zechariah's response is, well, here's what the promises are. Right? Let me recap them all for you. And at the end of 
chapter 6, when we move into chapter 7, one of the things we'll, we'll see as we read in just a second is the people are going, well, we know what they are. Like, and so they, they're even more frustrated because they're like, we're asking when this is happening and all you did was just repeat it back to us again. We've heard what the promises are. When will they come? What do we have to do? Do we have to build another temple? Does the temple need a, a yard? Is it not landscaped properly? Like what else, what else is there? And, and so in scripture, this comes across as something, you know, very, very kind of passive aggressive. And so when the people in chapter 7 come to Zechariah, they, they ask this, like, where the heck are you, God? In a very kind of calm, demeanored, passive aggressive way that you wouldn't even really pick up on if you didn't know how to read kind of Hebrew writings at the time. But here's what it says. This is in chapter 7 of Zechariah. In the fourth year of King Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. And now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should we weep or should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Doesn't seem to be anything weird in there, right? Here's what's happening. So the people, when they had been exiled... They started to fast on a regular basis. God didn't ask them to do that. They just started to do it ritualistically. And, and in that time, you know, fasting could happen for a, a numerous amount of reasons, but the primary reason why one would have fasted during the time of the Israelites is, is in, in the sense of a mourning of one's sin. So their fasting would have been a mourning of the sin that got them exiled and kind of a almost a remembrance and a commemoration of that sin on a regular basis. So they would fast at whatever interval to remind themselves that they had royally screwed it up, and that's what has them under Babylon in exile where they are. And they've been doing this for this whole time. And so when, when Zechariah reiterates the promises, they come to him and they're like, so, um, so Zechariah, random question, kind of out of left field, but um, it's like we've been doing this fasting thing over and over. Um, like, sh sh should we be getting ready to do that again? Or, or like, are the promises going to happen? Like, right? They're asking whether they should do the fast again as kind of a way of like, hey, Zechariah, when the heck are the promises coming? But instead of being that blunt about it, they're just like, so like, should we set up? It's like if you're wondering if that uncle you don't like is going to come to Thanksgiving, right? And so at the, at the you're setting the table because your mom asked you to, and you're like, so should I add the seventh place setting? Please, God, no. <laughs> yeah, put it out. Dang it. Okay. Right? Like, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. And so they, they, do, <laughs> they do that. And, and when, we, when we see their comments out, the Lord essentially answers them by flipping the script on them. He asks them in verses 5 and 7, when, when you fast, like this fasting that you're doing, when you do it, are you doing it for me? Or are you doing it for yourselves out of some made-up obligation? Because I, I never asked you to, to fast in the first place. So I'm not sure why you're doing the fasting thing. In other words, was it ever really sincere or is this whole thing just a religious practice to get what you wanted from me? Right? And he totally flips the script. And then he recounts 
how this was a problem with their forefathers as well, which is what got them exiled in the first place. Here we see Zechariah 7, verses 5 through 13. Is it 5 through, 8, 8 through 13, sorry. Verses 8 through 13. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond heart, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts and sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And so God's responding to them and saying, look, you're doing this just for your own sake. This is just one of the other stepping stones, one of the Christian practices that you put on yourself that somehow will get you my promise, and you're asking about whether you should continue it, Quite frankly, I could care less because I never asked you to fast in the first place. And by the way, this is what was wrong with your people before the exile. You just did whatever you were supposed to do out of obligation. But one of the things he says is, verse verse 13, As I called, they would not hear. So when they called, I would not hear. He goes, whatever they were doing, they didn't actually have, I didn't actually have their ear. And we see this even to, to the time of Jesus. One of the struggles that Jesus has is he encounters the Pharisees and they have all these laws and religious obligations, but what, what don't they have? A heart for the Lord. They don't have the heart. Right? And so we get here that first hint of what God is after. And then in chapter 8, God starts to make them some promises. And let's, let's stand as we read this because this is one of our, our main passages for the day. There we go. This is starting in verse 14 through 19. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And leave no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and of the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and love, peace. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. It's hard sometimes to figure out which one of these we stand for. And we always just try not to have too many up-downs. But here again, that which was disaster will now turn to good. And then 18 and 19 is the key issue here. The fasts that you did in mourning, they shall be done in joy and gladness when my promises are 
realized. So what's, what's God doing here? He's turning their question, original question, upside down, right? They're asking, God, when is the kingdom of God finally going to be real for us? And he is effectively telling them how the kingdom is going to function. And here's what he says. People, when, instead of asking when the kingdom's coming, maybe you should ask yourself, when are you going to be the kind of people that find themselves ready to be a part of such a kingdom? Rather than keep asking me, when am I going to fulfill my promises to you? Maybe your focus ought to be on how do we become the kind of people who best live in that kind of a kingdom and press into that reality as the people of God. In other words, back to the opening verse of the book. Return to me and I will return to you. Because if you want my promises in life realized, I need you. And I don't need some ritualistic obedience that's somehow robotic that you do as like a get this for this. It's not a tit for tat with me. I want your heart. I want you to return to me. And they're like, well, we have returned. He was like, yeah, but not really. Right? You ever know a couple that like is just rife with marital trouble? They've somehow been together forever and you just question, you're like, you're married, but you're not really. You just coexist in the same house. Like, you're here, but you're not here, right? A lot of times, what God is saying is that's how they were living. They were here, but not here. They were going through the things, build the temple, we build the temple. Do the fast, we did the fast. Wait, you didn't even ask us to do the fast, but we did it anyway, because we decided that that's what you want us to do, and so we did the thing that we thought God wants from us, because it's easy to do. How many of us go through ritualistic things in our Christian life because we think that that's what God's expectation of us is, right? I do these things because I think that's what God is pleased by. When the reality is, does he have your actual heart? Do you really belong to him? And the Israelites were doing the things that that were asked of them, but their hearts weren't after God. They still wanted his promises, and nothing else. And that's a real problem. And so God is challenging them. If you start acting like the people that are worthy of the kingdom, then I'll bring the kingdom. Take it down just a little bit. I'm hearing a little bit of funk. So he's after their hearts, and they are after his blessing, and they're trying to figure out what task do we have to accomplish, and they figure that the temple was it, but it wasn't, right? Haggai pestered us and all these things, and God is saying, my if isn't some task task list, my if is your heart. And the obvious question then becomes, well, now what? Because as Christians, what do we have? What does God tell us that we have when it comes to our hearts? We have hearts that are broken, This is the hardest part of hearing the words of Zechariah. He goes, I want all of you. And you say, well, we don't have that ability within ourselves. If God wants our heart, we aren't able to give it to him. And so if we read Zechariah 7 and 8, we have this rejoicing over the promises of God. We're told how to get the promises, but we have to face the realization as God's people that we are sin-stained and actually can't go after the promises, right? We can try to walk in obedience, and we should do that, but we should trust him a little more each and every day, but we should 
be more in tune with God's desires today than yesterday, but sinful hearts are sinful hearts. I don't care how hard you try to obey the Lord, to attend more Bible studies, to be more active in church, to tithe 10%, whatever your, your metric is of what gets you to be a good Christian, I don't care how hard you try, you still have a jacked up heart. You can't change your heart. You can change external behavior to a degree. You can look more Christian to other people, but at the end of the day, you still have a selfish, wretched, broken, filthy, dirty rag of a heart. Right? So how are we going to return to the Lord with all of our heart when our hearts are busted? Unfortunately, the whole remainder of the book of Zechariah from 9 through 14 addresses that to a degree. And it paints a, a picture of the future reality, right? Check out just Zechariah 9, 9, which one, you, you already likely know. This is a verse that most of you will read and go, oh, yeah, I remember this one. And, and two, we read this at Easter, sometimes at Christmas, but usually at Easter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you recognize that passage from, from Easter weeks or from Advent weeks? Sometimes we read it alongside of prophecies of Isaiah at Christmas time because we, it prophesies the coming King Jesus. And it actually prophesies the triumphal entry when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey rather than a war horse like you would expect him to. Right? Zechariah is prophesying the coming of Christ. And when we read about Jesus' triumphal entry in the Gospels, they are quoting Zechariah 9.9. Go through the Gospels and look at the cross-references. Zechariah 9.9 shows up all over the Gospel writers. They're hearkening back to what he's saying. Of all the minor prophets, Zechariah is the one who talks about Jesus more than anyone. As a matter of fact, among all the prophets, really, Isaiah is the, is the one that kind of has him beat a little bit. Isaiah talks about Jesus more than any other prophet. But Zechariah is a, is a close second. And to him, this coming king that he talks about in the very next chapter 9 is, is the answer to our heart problem. Because your heart is filthy and can't be fixed, but he comes bearing righteousness and salvation. Jesus is coming. He goes, guys, you can't do what this passage in 7 and 8 asks you to do. And Zechariah says, yeah, I know. Uh, and, and, and here's chapter 9. The king is coming. And guess what? He's bringing new hearts with him. He's bringing us the new hearts. And so the book of Zechariah is this wake-up call to the people, but with a monumental promise they haven't really heard yet. God is saying through this prophet, return to me and I will return to you. Stop checking your religious boxes and give me your hearts. And if you want the kingdom and its blessings, then start acting like the people who are worthy of it. And by the way, you can't. And so I'm going to send a king to give you a heart to make you able to. I want your heart. I don't know how to give it. I'm going to take care of that part too. Behold, the king is coming, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the entirety of the gospel is contained within this one minor prophetic book. The screw-up, the exile, the, the, the return, the failure even after returning, and then the final king coming. Do you see how the book of Zechariah is really the entire biblical story and metaphor 
It takes a small sliver of human history and uses it to paint a picture of the entire sliver. The people were in disobedience. Adam and Eve failed. The people were exiled. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. The people were brought back and they were asked to rebuild. Jesus comes. God calls them to be the people, right? But they still fail. And the promise isn't yet fully realized. They're living in this time when they've, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but the promise still seems so far away. Does that sound like us today? We know the promise is made. We know that Christ will come again in glory to reign. And we're wondering, when the heck is it going to happen? He says, guys, give me your hearts. I've sent my son to enable you to so that you know how to do it. All right. The book of Zechariah is a, is a little sliver that really paints a picture of the entire book of, of Scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Right? And you will, the question that you have from Zechariah, the challenge that I give to you is just really simply this. Will you receive this new heart? Will you allow the Lord to take a hold of the wretched heart you have and to replace it? to be a new creation, to accept that gift? And will you live and just press into this new identity that you've already been promised to receive? And with that power, with the Holy Spirit undergirding every move you make and every choice you make and every thought you have, the way your mind works, with the Spirit spiritually renewing you each and every day as you continue to grow in His likeness, will you simply return each day anew a part of yourself to him. And he will return to you. It's the promise of Zechariah. It's the promise of the Lord. It's the promise of every single dot and iota of the, of the breadth of, of his holy scriptures. Return to me and I will return to you. And if you don't know how, I'm taking care of that part too. My spirit will enable you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for these glimpses of the gospel that we get even within one of these minor prophets. We thank you that you are at work in God's people at that time and that through that we can see the way that you are at work in us even to this day. We thank you for the ways that we see echoes of ourselves in the people of God at that time. We can see the, the frustration. We can see the hardship. We can see how we try to do the things that you want us to do. And it seems like sometimes you're still not there. And Lord, you tell us it's just because you want our hearts. You call us to keep pressing into you. To keep walking next to you. Behind you. And that if we are faithful, that you also are faithful. When we bring ourselves unto you, that you will bring yourselves unto us. You promised it. In the very beginning of Genesis, when the fall occurred, that you would send your son, you carried that promise through the entirety of the Old Testament. And as we get here towards almost the end of the Old Testament, we see that that promise just has continued to carry through for thousands of years, and it still does even to this day. And Lord, we pray for that day when you will come again. We pray for the day when every promise that Zechariah dreamt about is realized fully, wholly, and that we get to live in that reality. God, we long for that day. We're tired. We are. We need you. We want you. Come, Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise you. And all his people said,